0: Welcome to the Facts Versus Feelings podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Dietrich, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sonu Varghese. Each week, we dive into the important market-moving events and cut through the noise to help you, as an investor, identify what really matters. Let's get this show started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the eighth edition of Carson's Facts Versus Feelings with Ryan and Sonu it is election season. It is here. We've talked about election season a lot. And we brought in who, honest to goodness, I think is one of the very best strategists and political people out there, Libby Cantrell from PIMCO. Libby, thank you so much for joining us on our new podcast. We've had a lot of traction. Uh, I think so. is she? Well, she, you're our second guest. You're our second guest. Um, just so honored to have you. How are you doing this morning?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's very exciting. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, this is fun, and there's a lot. I mean, so much we want to talk about here the next 30 minutes. I mean, Sonu,
2: jump in and say hi. Hey, uh, everyone. No, it's uh, fantastic to have you here, Libby. Been, you know, been uh, so widely followed and read, and so it's uh, an honor to have you on as a guest
1: very excited
2: yeah. to be here yeah i mean
0: sonu and i have talked politics and policy and elections midterm elections a lot the last couple of weeks we figured we'd have somebody yeah, mar- yeah well mark we can do the markets thing but we've done the other <laughs> things and now we're bringing in the big guns and the expert i mean yeah. libby let's start with something real simple then we'll get into it kind of what is your role with pimco how do you help you know investors and and people listening on this podcast kind of put all the pieces together what, what do you do there
1: yeah um well that, that is a great question especially given that um that politics in particular uh, tends to be quite a, a sensitive and, and very personal subject. Um, but yeah. we, we really try to kind of come to you know, politics and policy with the same sort of neutrality and objectivity as we do really any sector of the economy. So that's really my role is to kind of evaluate what is likely to happen, whether it's as it relates to an upcoming election or legislation on Capitol Hill or from a regulatory perspective, and again, really trying to kind of bank our own biases, or our own kind of political views, um, and really focus on what is likely to happen. I sort of liken myself to an umpire calling balls and strikes, um, not sort of saying where the ball should have gone, uh, but what actually happened to the ball, um, To use a tortured metaphor. Um, so, so, and I've been doing this now for about 12 years, um, I, you know, I think I have the best job, honestly, at have him go and maybe anywhere I um it's it's really unique to be able to combine uh, a sort of a personal passion um I've always really been interested in the intersection of policy politics and markets and the economy um and to be able to kind of come to work every day and talk to great folks like you
0: yeah so I guess it's safe to say you're off season and is in a couple of weeks clearly you're really busy now Do you have to take a break <laughs> in a couple of weeks how's that work
1: yeah it's all very not You know, it's it's kind of the off-season. Then it will really be talking about the implications of the midterms, what actually happened, uh, and talking about policy implications. It will go quiet for a couple of months, but then it will rev up. Because remember, and I know we're going to talk about this, Mm -hmm. uh, that the 2024 presidential elections are right around the corner. And if you can believe it, um, if the 2020 cycle is any indication, we're going to start hearing about debates. Uh, in the summer of uh, 2023. So that's really right around the corner. So yeah, a couple months reprieve, hopefully, uh, in the beginning of 2023, and then a, a pretty quick pivot to the presidential cycle.
2: Doesn't the presidential election season start on the day after the midterms?
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> I do think there's going to be a real read through in many ways. Um, and I think, yes, I think people are just actually stealing themselves. It's, it's funny, so new when I um, I often have to do you know, TV and what have you as part of my job. And after the, the 2020 presidential election, uh, right after President Biden was inaugurated that spring of 2021, I was asked about the next election, and I assumed they were talking about the midterms. And the TV anchor said, no, I'm talking about 2024. So I do think people um, are already uh, very focused on the presidential election, um, which just is even the thought of it is exhausting.
0: You know, great points there. So, you know, we've got questions. One thing I just kind of sparked me, you've been doing it for 12 years. You know, how is it different? I mean, it does, maybe you answered it. It feels like it's 24-7 we talk about policy and politics. I've been in this industry for over 20 years. I don't remember talking about the Fed and the, the election that much when I first started. Is, is it 24-7 now from when you started 12 years ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such, a, it's such a great question. You know, honestly, I do think that the financial crisis was a real inflection point, and that was when PIMCO had decided to create my role. And in addition to helping the investment committee think through political and policy risk, I also lead policymaker engagement. And I think for any firm that's intersecting with the markets or the economy, you know, interacting with Washington in some form or fashion, whether it's direct lobbying or just education or engagement through trade associations, I do think has become you know much more of a focus uh, really since the financial crisis. And that's why do I use that as sort of the inflection point? Well, that's, of course, when the government, in many different ways, whether it was the central bank, uh, whether it was fiscal policy, just right through the sort of regulatory channels, just became much more involved in the market. So I view that as kind of the inflection point. That's, again, sort of right when I, um, you know, basically right after that started started this job. But I think to, to sort of answer your specific question about the 24-7 nature of this. I mean, it really has. And of course, social media has very much exacerbated that. Um, My husband can tell you that I am like constantly scrolling Twitter. It's like the last thing I look at when I go to bed. It's like the first thing I look at in the morning. It's actually a really good source of news for me, but it also just sort of is emblematic of the fact that it it truly is a 24-hour news cycle, you know, for better or for worse. I think that- Uh, And we'll talk about this. I think the worst thing is that because of just the heightened focus, it does, it has turned up the temperature on the polarization in Washington. A lot of folks sort of posture for the camera, posture for Twitter, but, but behind the scenes, they're, I think, a lot more, you know, reasonable and a lot more willing to compromise than you might think if you're just you know, reading or, or watching the
0: television. Yeah, so Sonu, I'll let you answer a- ask the first question in a second. I just want to say one more time, this is your very busy season, Libby. We're aware that right ahead of midterms. PIMCO and Carson have been great partners for a long time, and we are just honored and delighted to have you. So we're going to put you on the hot seat now. Easy questions are done. <laughs> Sonu, why don't you uh, kick it off with the first question?
2: Yeah, let, let's come to midterms, right? And I do want to get to the fiscal policy aspect. Ryan and I, we talked, I mean, this is our eighth episode. It feels like we spent seven episodes talking about the Fed and monetary policy. So it's kind of a nice switch, especially at this time. But just a level set here, right? So midterm elections you usually see the president's party lose, assuming they have a majority in uh, Congress and the Senate and the, the House of Representatives, and which Democrats have right now. And going back to the beginning of the year, I, I imagine if you told anyone, at least anyone who sort of follows politics, then like, OK, you've got inflation at 40-year highs. You've got gas prices well above what it was last year. The president's approval rating is going to be, you know, close to 40 percent or just above that. I would think Democrats would lose about, what, 50, 60 seats and lose the Senate as well. So that's just like a base case. Right. But where are we at now relative to that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think that is broadly correct. Um, if we if we were doing this podcast, say, in May or June of this year, uh, we really were anticipating a pretty significant red wave uh, de- Republicans taking back, flipping the House, and very likely uh, flipping the Senate because of all the things that you, uh, you, you just pointed out. I mean, there is sort of this axiom in politics, gas and groceries. It is incredibly visible. It is incredibly pertinent for voters. Uh, it was very much back in May and June. It still is. Uh, this is still very much weighing on on sort of confidence if you look at the direction of the country you know people are pretty um peeved about uh to use a uh, to use a word that my eight-year-old uses uh, uh just about the direction of of the country so again if you had if we had been in this podcast in, in sort of june i would have absolutely been an agreement that it would likely be a red wave now i think one just sort of nuance about what you said is that it was never going to be a loss of 50 or 60 seats in the house and the reason sure. is is because while democrats do have a majority now they have a very narrow majority they have only a five seat majority in the house 50 50 senate only one, you know, one seat majority in the senate so the initial conditions here matter um so really i think that if we're seeing a red wave we would see kind of a 30 seat loss not a 50 or 60 seat loss and that's only because there are just not that many toss up seats in the House right now, um, given the fact that Democrats have that very narrow majority. But your broader point is well taken is that again, if we were talking in sort of, you know, May or June, uh, this would have been really kind of an easy election to call. It would be, you know, very likely a runway. But of course things you know, things have changed since then.
0: Want to know more about the impact the 2024 election may have on the markets and the economy? We'll be covering everything advisors and their clients need to know in the lead up to Election Day, including what to expect from the markets, news out of Washington, and what historically happens after elections. You can find all of our 2024 election content at carsongroup.com election. You know, Libby, one thing came up. You mentioned five-seat majority. I, I believe I've read and heard that's like the smallest majority for a new party that t- took over the presidency in like 140 years, President Cleveland, or maybe it's President Garfield. I'm not sure. I know you know, though. That, when's the last time it was that small of a majority?
1: Yeah, and for just to, to be specific about it, the dem- first-term Democratic president, okay, okay. Uh, yes, the narrowest majority, and that's right, of any first-term Democratic president uh, that's you know to, to navigate since Grover Cleveland, so since okay. 1884. Um, wow. I probably would to be your only guest who will mention uh, the <laughs> ghost of Grover Cleveland. Um, but it, but it is, it was a very, and I think this is something interesting, Ryan, because I think people sort of forget, you know, obviously while, and I know some folks still debate it, but while president Biden, uh, you know, by all, for all intents and purposes, won the election by about four points or so um, that the Democrats did pretty poorly in down ballot races. Yes. They, were able to to get a Senate victory, but of by the smallest margins, they did actually lose House seats. They were able to keep the majority in 2020, but they actually lost those House seats in 2020. So um, yes, yeah, so the initial conditions matter, a very narrow majority, which is also, you know, we can speak to the legislative agenda that Biden has actually been able to get through kind of amazingly enough i uh, given those very narrow majorities in, in, in both chambers.
0: Uh, great points there. So do you think we'll have, maybe we don't have a red way, but do you think Republicans will take, I mean, I think it's safe to say, I believe that if you look at the polls, they'll probably take the house by a little bit, but the Senate seems like more of a 50 50. Can you talk to us about the uh, Senate races there?
1: Yeah. So, so I do think just kind of to, to filter out the signal from the noise here a mm-hmm. little bit, that investors should be focused on the house because okay. Uh, if the House flips, that's really, and we can talk about sort of policy implications. But that's the most important swing factor. If Republicans get the House and the Senate, that's kind of you know the cherry on top of the 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 cake. But it is not really the cake. Really, the the main focus should be uh, the whether the House flips or not. And again, I can sort of expand on on that. But I think you are right that um, the conventional wisdom. Uh, is likely right that Republicans take back the House. Now, if, again, if we had talked you know, three weeks ago, it was looking a little bit better for Democrats. We didn't feel to mitigate some of the losses. Right now, it looks like Democrats are on track of losing anywhere between kind of 10 and 30 seats. I would probably put it kind of somewhere in the middle, maybe 15 to 20. Um, and again, that is sufficient enough for Republicans to take back the majority and have like a relatively okay cushion. It's not huge by historical standards, but it does give, say, you know, presumed Speaker McCarthy, who will likely be the Speaker under Republicans, um, enough kind of wiggle room. The Senate, though, as you point out, is very much in kind of toss up territory. Now, things are changing. I think just for folks who are listening, you know, things to look at, the generic ballot, that's usually a good indication of how uh, parties usually do in uh, midterm elections. This is sort of the generic uh, poll that asked folks if they prefer one party over the other. That had been really in Republican territory for much of this year. Then it kind of had gone over to Democratic territory briefly. It's kind of back in Republican territory. So if that continues, if that trend over the next two weeks or so continues, then Republicans in some of these very, very <laughs> tight races in the Senate uh, could could squeak out a victory. For folks who are again listening i would just say that really important Senate races and the likely the control of the senate will come down just to a handful of states i'd be very focused on now looks like actually arizona that's become more competitive now um as blake masters has has done a bit better against kelly most recently but really i think the more competitive ones are nevada georgia and pennsylvania those three are likely will dictate control of the setup. I think the bottom line here is again, folks should focus on the House because that's kind of the most important swing factor. And then even if Republicans take back the Senate, it will probably be by one seat, maybe two, but nowhere close to either a filibuster proof or veto proof majority, which is what you really need in the Senate in order to kind of affect policy change.
0: It's funny, you mentioned cake. I think this is like the third or fourth podcast in a row. We've actually talked about cake on this podcast. So thank you for, for pointing pointing that out. I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz. I mean, and Sona, you can have the next question, but they seem like they're in the media. It's what people are talking about. Talk to, it seems like Dr. Oz is, after that, you know, the the, the um oh. the debate they had, he took a little, he did better than expected. And even Herschel Walker, I mean, what about those two? Because they're all over the place. What do you see on those two?
1: Yeah, so, you know, Pennsylvania, that's been in sort of democratic territory. If you look at the polls, right, and like we Mm -hmm. all have to take a huge grain of salt when we're looking at this polling. You know, I think my rule of thumb is if it's within kind of a five-point swing, it's within the margin of error, kind of regardless of what they say the margin of error is on the polling. If you're sort of outside of that five points, it's probably more comfortable one way or the other, Um, but all of these races are within five points. With that said, Fetterman had been leading, there actually hadn't been any poll where Dr. Oz has led any, you know, even Republican pollsters that have been doing uh, polls in, in Pennsylvania have found that um, Dr. Oz has been lagging. Fetterman, I do think Tuesday's debate though was like an inflection point. And honestly, I was listening to it. I was on the road, you know, visiting some other clients and you're know, listening to it at the airport and you just think, wow, I cannot believe the Fetterman campaign agreed to this. Um, he is you know, clearly... And of course, we all have empathy for him. Uh, we all know people who suffered a stroke, but like, wow, he is pretty—he's very impaired, and you know, he did not do anything to assuage voters' concerns about the condition of his health. Anything he just exacerbated those concerns. Mm-hmm. So, I do think that that race is very much in play. I think you could also see, interestingly, and not to get kind of too into the weeds here, but there's a really important governor's race in that state as well. I actually think you could see some split ticket voting um, that folks actually vote for the Democrat for the governor, but then vote for Dr. Oz um, for the Senate. So it remains to be seen how that debate will play out. We haven't seen any of the polling after that, uh, but I think that the conventional wisdom was that was a big uh, kind of mistake, honestly, for the Fetterman campaign, and for sure did not help him, uh, probably just hurt him. So I would say that's a very squarely in toss up territory. Georgia also in toss-up territory. One important nuance, though, just to remember about Georgia, and we're just kind of reliving 2020 in some ways, is Mm -hmm. that if no candidate gets 50%, it forces a runoff. You know, there's been nobody. Warnock was polling um, very briefly in late August around, you know, over 50%. I don't think either candidate will get 50%. That means that we will force to a runoff. I do think Georgia could be, again, the swing vote for the Senate. Um, in which case we wouldn't know the direction of Senate until December 6th. That's when the runoff is going to be. But again, I think that's just, you know, that's more noise than it is a signal, just because it really doesn't matter as much if Republicans control both the House and the Senate. What's really important is if they control the House. And we will likely know that within, you know, maybe not on election night, but, you know, most likely kind of the days after the election, we will have a good, understanding of what, you know, their majority looks like, you know, if they, if they take back the house.
0: So don't book your off season trip quite yet for the Cantrell <laughs> family. You're saying we could have to wait. Sona, what else yes. do we uh, want
2: to ask her here? I, I wanted to get to like the policy agenda or lack thereof, you know, however you want to define that. But real quick, since I have you, I know you follow, you, you know, you're in the, the politics scene so much. What's your take on polls and what they tell us? Because, you know, and maybe there's some anchoring here because of what happened in 2016, 2020, but Democrats are, I think, safe to say overwhelmingly favored. But we saw, you know, Republicans doing better than expected. So I wanted to take your polls uh, or your take on what the polls, you know, generally how you look at polls and are polls overstating Democrats' chances, you know, as much as they are. Polls favored them, as I said, in 2016, 2020. Yeah, it's
1: absolutely possible. Now, I do think... Um... But I'm not, we do not, fortunately, we do not do polling here at go, we are not running our own polls, thank goodness, um, because I do think, you know, to pollsters credit, you know, their job is incredibly difficult, right? When you were polling 30 years ago, you would, at, most people had a landline, a lot of people watched the nightly news at 6 p.m., we were, they were having dinner together, so you knew that if you were calling then, you could get more of a representative sample. And, you know, sadly, I think folks just had more confidence in institutions, including pollsters back then. Now you fast forward to today, people are on cell phones, they're not necessarily at home watching the nightly news, eating dinner together, and they do have a lot of um, sort of skepticism around both institutions and including kind of pollsters. So there is this, you know, and what we saw in 2016 and 2020 when President Trump was on the ballot. Is lots of folks who did not respond, um, and as a result, they were underrepresented in this polling. Now, of course, as you know, not, again, not to get too much into the guts of this, pollsters they try to take as random of a sample as possible, and then they kind of rebalance that sample versus what they think the likely voter base is going to be. So, what they missed on on both 2016 and 2020 is who actually turned out to vote. It was a lot of those Trump voters who came out to vote and they were under sampled in their kind of overall the weighting. Um, now bolsters have tried to fix that again. They're trying to take, you know, education uh, background and, and geography into more consideration. Um, but again, this is definitely like art versus more art than science, uh, even though I think some sure. folks think, you know, will will claim it is science. So long way of saying We have sympathy for pollsters. They have a difficult job. With that said, you definitely have to take it with a grain of salt. Democrats have been sort of oversampled in a lot of these polls, especially in 2016 and 2020. They did get 2018 correct, though. If you look at the state polls in 2018, they were much more accurate. Um, Now, was that because Trump wasn't on the ballot? Like, who knows? Uh, So we'll sort of see in 2020. I do think there's this is another test, though, for pollsters if they failed this test. You know, I think we're going to see fewer polls, unfortunately, just because uh, folks are going to kind of take themselves out of the game, so to speak.
2: I can't imagine that'll be helpful to have fewer <laughs> no, polls. No, you know. no, exactly. And just going to the policy agenda, right? Uh, you know, or the but I mean, if the, as you said, if Republicans in the House, which looks like they will, the Biden agenda for you know as much as there is left anymore on the table, it's practically fault. Well, it's, it's dead, right? But so are we looking at mostly like a debt ceiling fight? And are we looking at, you know, if the Biden administration wants the debt ceiling increase, are Republicans going to ask them for Social Security, Medicare cuts? And is that where we're going to end up?
1: Yeah, so I think kind of zooming out, if we're looking at, you know, this is why I think, again, the focus is on the House, not necessarily the House and the Senate, because as long as Republicans control the House, they will be able to use their most important lever, which is to obstruct. Um, That they can do that if they just control the House, they can obviously do that if they control both the House and the Senate. So to your point, there will be a complete freeze of the Biden legislative agenda. Now, from the market's perspective, that will be welcome, particularly as it relates to possible tax increases. So there'll be no more kind Mm -hmm. of policy tax, you know, tax headline risk, if you will. Uh, whether it is increasing individual taxes or windfall taxes or what have you, whatever kind of the, the headline of the day is. So that will get, complete, you know come to a screeching halt. Importantly, though, and I just want to make sure folks remember this, is that the individual tax cuts under the TCGA, the, the Trump Tax Cut Jobs Act, um, will all expire at the end of 2025. So that is the next big inflection point. Should Republicans take back one or two chambers? No changes to tax policy. You then look to the end of 2025. That's the next sort of big inflection point. So that's one area. So kind of obstruction freezing of the the agenda, including tax changes. The other kind of big lever that Republicans will be able to exercise is their oversight lever. Um, when you control. But either House and Senate, Uh, you're able to not only control floor time, you're also able to control the committees, which means that you're able to control which topics you investigate. I think there will be a ton of investigations. Um, You know, Republicans will couch this as oversight. Democrats will say this is a witch hunt, you know, what have you. Welcome to the partisanship of Washington, D.C. But on things from regulations, student loans, China, what have you. And then kind of thirdly, as you point out, there will be more policy volatility around things that, you know, I think as Americans, not making a political statement, we wish that there were kind of more support for uh, in funding the government. That is a basic uh, obligation of a member of Congress. We might, you know, you might kind of quibble around levels and what have you, but to kind of take that hostage um, has become a tactic on both the right and the left. as well as the debt ceiling. Now, the debt ceiling it looks like it won't have to be increased until kind of the third or fourth quarter. It depends on how the student loan calculation uh, factors in and some other some other sort of variables. But we're not really talking about that fight until the third quarter. But what you know, re- what Republicans have made clear is yes, they will take this hostage, and so that means in our markets, uh, fixed income markets, there will likely be some volatility now. You know, I think we've been able to kind of look through that. We've actually been able to take advantage of it for clients. There, you know, some mispricing which we, um, you know, can sort of uh, take advantage of again. Um, but you know, from that close to the brink, uh, and it's and it really does feel like this this time could be different. And they actually do take the United States borrowing authority over the cliff. Um, that obviously means. Not only bad things for the fixed income market, but also for risk markets just broadly. So, um, yes, it's going to be it's going to be kind of a contentious period of time with probably more policy volatility and as a result, market volatility.
0: Uh, Great, great stuff there. I mean, this is this is awesome. We've got time for two more questions, but I did want to kind of just chime in and get to know you a little bit. You've got an eight-year-old. You live in New York. Okay, what what is, what do you guys like to do for fun? I mean, when you're not talking politics, you trying to get out of this world that we live in. What do you guys like to do?
1: Yeah, well, I have an, an all, actually, almost eight-year-old. She'll, she'll almost. be eight next week, okay. Okay. And, and then I have a uh, and then I have a uh, an eleven-year-old actually as well. Okay. Um, and yeah, we live in New York City. I grew up in Colorado, though. So and my mm. husband's from Minnesota. So neither of us really anticipated. Uh, either living or raising a family in New York, Um, but it is, you know, there's some bad, it's it's not exactly a clean city, Um, but there's also some really great things about it, including, you know, lots of public spaces, lots of museums, lots of diversity, Um, so yeah, we just, you know, on the weekends, we enjoy the city. Right now, if you, you know, people who have kids are empathetic to this, our kids are really involved in lots of activities. So yep. I find that we spend most of our weekends, like shuttling them from one thing to, to another. Um, but, but yeah, and, and we don't really talk a lot about politics, although my 11 year old just ran for student government. Very exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I helped him with his slogan. And, uh, and so he seems more, more interested. He, he is asking me about the generic ballot every night. And then also about how I'm seeing the Georgia Senate race play out uh, in particular because of, he likes sports, so Herschel Walker has some resonance for, for him.
0: So I gotta ask if he ran, did he win?
1: He did win. He oh, did congrats. win, yes.
0: There we go. Okay, good. I was oh, hoping good. he did. Yeah, right. Awesome. Yes, he ran
1: and he won, yes. Okay. So he's good, not, good. Like, you know, he's feeling the stress of being hmm. like a public servant. He says everyone yeah. has ideas for him, he's getting very overwhelmed. He's planning his Halloween party. Like, no so, um, but yeah. That's awesome.
2: No, Look well, no. cool. Well, well congrats so there. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah exactly. So, so again, we... nice to have your mom, as campaign manager. I <laughs> yeah. suppose. I
1: like. know. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it.
2: That's, that's
0: awesome. Well, we got time for two more questions. Again, this has been awesome. We probably could talk for an hour on all this stuff. You know, let's say um, we've got divided government at the end. We've got a lot of people who listen to this podcast for investment advice. and I know you've broken down all the numbers. Let's say we kind of pretty much a divided government kind of gridlock. Is gridlock really good for stocks? Talk to us about that, Libby.
1: Yeah, so gridlock has been historically good for stocks. Interestingly, uh, this is kind of a like, very interesting stat. If you go back to like the 1930s, Every year post a midterm election, the market's actually done well. It's mm-hmm. it had a nominal positive return. Now, of course, the the market circumstances next year in terms of deflation, recession risk, war in Ukraine, China, U.S. tensions, and what have you, um, may make 2023 quite different and the exception to that historical norm. But it is a historical norm. Now, if you if you could unpack that and you look at actually how the market has done. Under either kind of a split Congress or united control of Congress, but then a, you know a president being a different party, so sort of split government, as you said, um, the market's actually done even better. Uh, so, you know, under those two kind of combinations, which are again the most likely scenario, either Republican Congress or a split Congress with, of course, Biden in the White House, um, the 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 market's done quite well. So. You know, we can't say past this prologue. Of course, we all make the caveats that mm-hmm. you know, previous performance is no indicator of future performance. Um, but if you're just looking at the historical trend, yeah, the markets have actually liked to gridlock. But Ryan, if I may, I'm just going to sort of add maybe sort of a, a note of caution to that. Not only did we talk about the debt ceiling, you know, potential source of volatility, but the other thing that I think you should very much count on um, under most circumstances next year is that there will be – very little fiscal support, so very little counter cyclical kind of fiscal engagement should the economy slow down. Um, mm-hmm. And why do I say that? Well, you know, Republicans ideologically have always been, or historically at least have been opposed to a lot of government spending. So that's one sort of philosophy, ideology. Two, though, importantly, and this actually applies to some Democrats too, is that now interest expense is much higher. So if you actually look at the percentage that government funds and budget is going to actually interest expense, it's much higher, of course, because rates are higher. Um, and it's actually crowding out some other priorities. So there's really going to be a lot of reticence about uh, any sort of government spending or kind of increased government spending, even if we go into recession. So that's sort of a nuanced, and again, that the market has responded well in these times after midterms, particularly under by the government. But I'd say the only caveat to that is when you don't have united government, you have a much higher chance of sort of less fiscal support. Again, even in a town ta- in a time of of a downturn, and I think that will be the case also in in 2023.
0: Well, that's great. I mean, Sono, you can ask the last question here in a second awesome. about twenty twenty four. I'll just point out we've looked into this too. And uh, correct me if I am wrong, Libby, but one of the strongest time for stocks historically was a Democratic president with both chambers of Congress red. That was President Clinton in the late nineties, right? Stocks did just fine then at the, under that right. scenario. Correct? That's
1: that's exactly right. Now, of course, it's different economic environment, but we can totally. all help. We can all help, mm-hmm. especially after this this type of year. And I will right. say, I mean, just plug for fixed income, right? I mean, rates now at four percent, like. Four, you know, four to five percent, depending on when the Fed stops. Like things are looking more attractive too. So it's not just the bond market. Actually, we could actually get some nice carry in the fixed income market next year as well.
2: Uh, great stuff. It's interesting going back to the late '90s. Yeah, we were still at around four percent interest rates. If yeah. I remember right. But yeah, uh, right. no, I, I think that's hopefully something positive to we'll look forward to. Ryan has written a lot about this as well. Like you know uh, how the next six months really are. You know, the best six months of uh, presidential four-year presidential cycle so just to end on something positive here i thought i'll ask you know is there some legislative area where you see both parties working together maybe defense or i I was just looking at you know the day we are recording is when q3 gdp numbers came out and defense was a positive contributor after several quarters so just looking at you know what's positive where can we everyone agree on something
1: yeah uh, yeah i think that if you just look at our social media and if you look at redistricting and, and lots of other sort of things, structurally, we see in, like, an incredibly divided, partisan country, you know, if you go kind of behind the scenes, though, on Capitol Hill, like, yes, the temperature has certainly turned up, but there are lots of areas where members work together all day long, right? I mean, there, you know, Speaker right. Boehner used to be one of our advisors, and he would always say, like, it's in the new the newspapers only write about the things where there's a lot of conflict. They never mm-hmm. write about the the things yep. that that you know flood insurance and defense authorization bill like things that right. actually have lots of bipartisan support. So I will just sort of say that there is more kind of bipartisan support for of things generally than may meet the eye. There are some particular policy issues that I do think we could see some traction on. One is crypto? There's a big open question about kind of the direction of crypto, which regulators have the remit over what, you know, whether it's a, you know, a security or whether it's a commodity. And as a result, how it's actually regulated, I think we could see legislation kind of regardless of what the election outcome is on that. I think we also see um, the Secure 2.0. That's a big sort of uh, subsequent retirement legislation that to the retirement legislation that was passed in the Trump era. Um, There's a lot of bipartisan support for that. We could actually see that in the lame duck session, if not uh, next, Congress. And then you're right to point out defense. Uh, Defense does have a lot of support from both sides of the aisle. And I will just say on this point, and this is something we've been tracking, obviously, the war in Ukraine very closely, our Emerging Markets team in particular And, you know, I would just fade these comments from both sides, both corners of the parties that are saying that they are not going to continue to spend on Ukraine. It is just not Mm. an option. Honestly, there is a lot of hawkishness on Russia in particular on both sides of the aisle. And while it may play well to their again, the corners of their bases, um, it is not the kind of the the broader view in congress there will continue to be funding it may have a little bit more oversight attached to it if republicans come into power but there will continue to be funding for that war for the foreseeable future just because i think the stakes are so high should there not continue to be support i think people do not think that letting putin win in any form or fashion is um is an option and as a result there will continue to be support for for ukraine
0: Interesting. You know, I guess I, I lied. I'm sorry. One more question. Um, when we <laughs> no when we met a couple months ago, we talked to our advisors. Awesome discussion, similar to this. We talked about will President Biden run again in 2024. Um, what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that?
1: So I have no edge on this. I have to mm-hmm. be like very upfront. There are things that I say. I have you know that I, right. I I'd like to think that I have an informed view. I do not have an informed view. I my own personal view. My own personal mm-hmm. view on this is that. I don't think he will run again. Mm-hmm. Now, it so, it's, could be somewhat informed by the midterm election outcome, say, and this is very unlikely to happen, but theoretically, if Democrats really outperformed, then sure, could you see that Biden would take that as a re- positive reflection on his own you know, governing style and what have you, his own record, and then declare again? Sure, that seems very unlikely. Um, and I just think that the folks who really matter in Biden world, his sister, for instance, uh, his wife, I just would be very surprised if they are privately not advising him just to step aside. That's how he had characterized his presidency. That it's going to be a transitional presidency. Um, and he's going to, and and this is like not a knock on him. First of all, the presidency is a very difficult job. I feel like being the fed chair and the president United States right now are like the two most difficult jobs. Uh, and you know, he is older, of course. I mean, I'm 45 Mm -hmm. and the idea of like trying to adhere to his schedule, uh, is brutal. So, um, I do think that will be a limiting factor. And then on the Trump, you know, I think that's sort of the same thing for President Trump, honestly, I think that he's going to, of course, be very tempted to run. And there will be a, a read-through to the midterms if his folks like Blake Masters or Dr. Oz or Herschel Walker all do very well and run the table, then probably the chances of him declaring are higher. But absent that, you know, I just think that um, he is going to be reluctant about running again and potentially losing again. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Again, I have no real nice. edge on this. Uh, these are just sort of my personal views. So as a result, I think, again, for implications for the market is if we, it's either going to be an incumbent rematch, Biden versus Trump, kind of a repeat of 2020, um, or I think it's going to be a very crowded primary on both sides of the aisle where you do have this sort of fight for the soul of each party uh, happening in a pretty messy, noisy, in a noisy way.
2: Well, a lot of debates, but a lot of debates when speaking <laughs> of age, you know, I know, Ryan, you're going to close out. So I just want to wish you a happy birthday for I know ah. this is the day we record. tomorrow's your birthday. Yes. So happy birthday. Hoping for a good, positive market day best day for the markets in 2022 hopefully yeah i
0: turned 44 tomorrow so getting getting, getting oh, up there getting right up there. Um, well th- thank you and, and libby honestly thank you so much for joining us um this is an awesome discussion we're huge fans of you and everything you do for pimco and obviously just our industry in general trying to connect that's what sona and i try to do too. connect the dots to make it easier for the average person to understand what's going on and with midterms there's a lot of confusion out there i think you did an awesome job and i'll be honest about 20, 25 years, I look forward to uh, your son, potentially. Maybe not if you want him to, but potentially <laughs> being evidence. in politics, running for things. What's I mean, that that's like,
1: it yeah, you course. know, <laughs> exactly. Really so, like,
0: yeah. And no, happy birthday,
1: it, almost. And, and thanks so much for your partnership. We we so appreciate it here at Pimco, um, our partnership with Farson. So uh, lovely, and very honored to be on your on your podcast. So um wonderful, and I hope hopefully we can do it again at some
0: point. Uh, hey, absolutely. This was the eighth facts versus feelings, and I promise you you'll be back on again if you want to be back on. So everybody, thank you. Uh, hopefully this is an awesome this was an awesome discussion. We appreciate it. Sonu and I will be back next week to talk about everything then. Everyone have a great week. Take care. Information provided on facts versus feeling with Sonovar Geese and Ryan Dietrich are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. The statements and opinions of show guests may not be reflective of CWM LLC or its affiliates. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested indirectly. Investing involves risk. Including possible loss of principal. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on facts versus feelings are not affiliated with CWM LLC.